0: Nicholas Crowley is a founder at Frontline Advisory and the co-author of Warrior Diplomats, Civil Affairs Forces on the Frontlines. This is Nicholas Crowley. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. I'm here with uh, Nick Crowley. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I-, I had been introduced uh, to your work through this book, uh, Warrior Diplomats, and it, it resonated with me because I'm a, a software engineer, and so we face this problem all the time of ingesting huge amounts of data. And a lot of you know companies want, you know, they're so excited by the idea of big data, uh, but somebody has to put it in context. And sometimes more is not necessarily better because it it can just confuse. Um, and so you have this this sort of this concept of like, okay, well, we need more. You know, not just acquiring, vacuuming up data, but people who can put this in context, and hence these warrior diplomats. Um, maybe just to set the stage here, what, what exactly does that mean? Is this just a a, a branding term uh, to make diplomats feel cooler, or uh, what, what? What do these people do?
1: No, what it is, it's a bit of a branding term for an element of the military um, that I've worked with for a number of years um that's trying to carve out its sort of niche in an entity that isn't sure it needs to care about what they do mm. and this is the part of the military that's meant to cross that civil military divide uh, that's responsible for understanding
0: uh and
1: enabling effects and results in the 98 percent of the world that's not the enemy right Right. So they have this massive problem set in front of them, but they're they're funded at a minuscule fraction of, of any real prospect of success. Frankly, they're kind of set up to fail a little bit, um, and they live. They inhabit a system that isn't really designed to to help them get the job done. Uh, so they're out there. They are soldiers uh, and and marines. Uh, the marines have civil affairs as well. Uh, who are supposed to, again, look at this vast expanse of humanity and tell senior decision makers or, again, commands at any level, what it is that matters out there. What do you need to know about the civilian world in whatever part of the world or whatever context you happen to be in? And obviously, there's a massive spectrum from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where there was a lot of very articulate talk about how all this matters, I don't think we really made the pivot from theory to action, from talking about it to doing it well or consistently. And we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, but also you look at Ukraine right now. I work quite a bit over there uh, in different capacities. And it, it depends on how you define your view. You know, one view of the war in Ukraine is the front lines in the east and the southeast. And it's mechanized, technology-enabled, you know, high intensity combat uh, and there aren't that many civilians around Um, and that's one way of looking at that war but then there's a whole society behind that there there's ukrainian resistance in the occupied areas there's a ukrainian society that is mobilized in extraordinary ways uh, not just to defend themselves against the russians during the initial invasion uh, but to sustain international attention you know if the ukrainian people have not stepped up the way that they did um, from a civil resistance standpoint from a social cohesion standpoint there's no chance that the us and europe would be supplying weapons and money the way that we have no chance so right. is that part of the battlefield how do senior military decision makers look at that how do you start to make sense of the ukrainians will to fight of societal resilience Uh, of nonviolent resistance. And all of that, for the most part, falls to this very small, not particularly well-funded, not particularly well-integrated bit of the military uh, that is civil affairs. And so, you know, the the book was written with, it was myself uh, and two, what are now two former civil affairs professions. Um, One is a colonel still serving, Uh, in the U.S. Army, but no longer in civil affairs. One was a quite senior NCO who's recently retired, and we're all friends, frankly, Uh, and we wanted to put a book together to lay out a couple things. Um, Some kind of conceptual and strategic about the world we're in and how the military can make sense of it, Uh, and then there's quite practical about this capability and how it does what it does. Um, And this is where it became an edited volume with a couple dozen people contributed from different elements of the service and, you know, active duty and reserve, et cetera, uh, trying to chime in and tell different parts of the story.
0: Yeah, it, it's fascinating that you say that this is underfunded because I've, I've had friends who have worked at like defense contractors where if, you know, a piece of a, a radar breaks rather than just replacing the piece, it's like, oh, just order a new radar, you know, because they, they're just gushing with money. Uh, but this this seemingly pretty important part of the military i it's is it not just like why is it underfunded is it i don't know the arrogance of top brass or uh, it, yeah
1: i get it there's cuz again you know I, I find myself you know working trying to support civil affairs and you find yourself doing pro bono work in you know, the yeah. us army that's a weird thing to do, right? Yeah. Because uh, there, there's abundant money out there. And there's I'll, there's a version of an expression that, you know, your budget is your real strategy document in any organization. You can say whatever you want, but the, the money doesn't lie. Um, and, and civil affairs capabilities are being cut, not expanded. Um, and part of it is that at a, at a, a very broad institutional level, The military, I default to saying the army, but the military writ large doesn't want to deal with this, right? The civilian world, the human terrain, whatever you want to call it, right? All the contextual stuff around force on force combat is messy. It's ambiguous. It's subjective. It's dynamic. And you don't want to deal with it. You know, so many war games that are out there begin from the premise well, the civilians have been evacuated off the battlefield and now we're gonna practice what we really do, right? Like that's the classic go-to story from big NATO exercises, big U.S. military exercises. You know, let's start maneuver, let's start the serious stuff. All those, the civilians are out of the way. Uh, so, you know, instinctively the army doesn't want to do it. And in part I'm sympathetic because we do have the State Department, right? The army is the army. They are an instrument of, of violence and it's a mistake to view them as something else. And and I think others have made an argument I'm very sympathetic to, that a lot of our problems in, in geopolitics and in terms of the US's ability to be effective overseas stems from the fact that the military has a grossly disproportionate role in US foreign policy by virtue of how well they're funded and how big they are compared to the State Department. And the State Department You know, again, I I travel around a lot and U.S. embassies in any country that's remotely challenging are basically prisons. You know, the diplomats are locked inside where they're safe and it's very difficult to get out. It's very difficult to go anywhere. You know, force protection, risk management predominate Uh, and you wind up in this weird environment where. The diplomatic corps is focused at a very high level on engagement with their counterparts in a local government. And again, people from state might get pissed off and challenge me on this and have arguments to make. But I don't think state is in the business of ground truth in a lot of these places that are contested, that are difficult. Uh, And that falls to the military. The military doesn't really want to do that either. You know, it's a civil affairs job. Push it over to them. They'll unpack all the messy, complex, socioeconomic, call it tribal, whatever. It depends on where you are, right? But all this messy contextual stuff will fall to civil affairs. Um, and it's gonna realistically be two, three, five people covering a country.
0: You know, That's so crazy.
1: What does that really look like? Yeah. You know, we, we were sending five person teams to Ukraine right up until the invasion. They were attached to the embassy and they had a better freedom of maneuver than, than the diplomats. But it's an overwhelming challenge. And this gets back again, like instinctively, the army doesn't want to do it. And the fact that five people, you know, are the civil reconnaissance capability of U.S. Special Operations Forces in Ukraine on the eve of a major war that a lot of people see coming is telling, that we, we don't, tell me you don't care without telling me you don't care, right? Uh, that, that's telling. And then on the other side is this idea that well, maybe data can solve our problems. Uh, if we suck up on, a, and that's sort of the, the, the basic mentality when I hear senior people and, and even also the academics attached to the military sort of machine uh, talk about the fourth industrial revolution and AI and all the rest of it and big data. It's that you know, bigger is better we'll keep sucking up all this stuff and we'll figure it out and we'll have these cool staggeringly expensive tools that may or may not work and the ux is crap and all the rest of it is a nightmare yeah but it's it's sexy right we have an ai enabled thing that gives us situational awareness the push of a button we have however many terabytes of this and that and the other thing and you know, I think a lot of it ties back to what the military is comfortable with. If you're trying to find an individual somewhere out there, think kind of targeting of the global war on terror. And you could pull all these data points into something like Palantir, one of these tech systems. And you have an extraordinary ability to, to find that kind of needle in a haystack from a phone number and a license plate and facial recognition and biometrics and whatever coming together from a targeting standpoint. So tactically, it's quite a useful thing. But to actually get situational understanding of why things are happening, and to to connect, you know, to establish causal relationships, cause and effect, this is happening because of this. I, I don't think these platforms do that, and I, I get a bit grumpy. I don't know the right word. Uh, it, they're sold as such, like yeah, I yeah, know what's happening, and yeah, they don't. I don't think that happens. I don't
0: think it's reliable. Well, okay. So let's. I want to take specific examples to see like what the potential value of this kind of work could be. Uh, you mentioned Afghanistan, and mm-hmm. it, there have been, uh, you know, not just the U.S. but the Soviets got trapped there. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any scenario that that you can see? Because for the past, you know, two decades since I was a kid, they've been sort of selling us this idea that oh, if we just tweak this here, a surge here. Uh, you know we we can we can make this a, a victory um is there any possibility of a, a strong civil affairs force turning this into something a more positive outcome
1: The short answer is no right great tactical capabilities can't compensate for an absence of, of strategy um and again this gets into a personal view I, I think there was a massive, failure of imagination or lack of institutional wisdom courage call it what you want about a year into that war you know latest 2003 why are we there what is the point in afghanistan um and so again you had people there it was deprioritized for a while it was reprioritized later but they're sitting there they're in positions of authority they're trying to tell a story of, of victory And this is where the the, the big data stuff gets dangerous, frankly, where if you give me data sets, lots of data, right? I I can tell any story you want. A hundred percent. By describing meaning, right? Violence is up, violence is down. Why? Are we winning or losing? You know, the prices of this or that are going up. Is that inflation? Is that an economy coming back to life? Is the supply chain collapsing? Like You could tell any story you want around data sets. And that's that perennial, hey, we're turning the corner in Afghanistan, right? Um Iraq to me is more interesting. Uh in part again, personal bias, because I I've worked there a lot. Um, but this, you know, they're there uh we got to a place, I think, where we saw a way toward stabilizing that conflict. Um, and we talked a really good game, particularly during the surge, um, about not hearts and minds in sort of a trivial way, but actually understanding what's underneath the violence in these different communities in Iraq, from the sectarian conflict to the resistance against the US forces that were there, to tensions in Iraqi politics between different segments of that political system and the government. Um, And this was an, an environment where, you know, substantive contextual understanding can help make a difference um now again did it in a way and then that's that's the 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 first book i wrote was about the surge and about iraq um based on my time there in 2008 um and you know the the story of the surge as this sort of triumph of counterinsurgency i I think is pretty thin um but that's a separate conversation i guess what
0: what, Um, what were you and because now you've mentioned you're you know, done work in Ukraine, in Iraq. What, what are you yeah. actually doing in these places?
1: Yeah, so in Iraq, I was working with something called the human terrain system, which I think won, like, euphemism of the year in the sort of D.C. Uh, contest back then. But if you go back in time to 2005, 2006, and this very much speaks to the conversation we're having uh, in the book, you know, at that point in time, civil affairs was being used to... Dig wells and paint schools and hand out soccer balls and stuff like that. Fairly superficial, excuse me, hearts and minds stuff. A lot of project management type work. Interfacing with a local construction company to repair a hospital. They were not being used as investigative assets to understand the contextual issues behind insurgency, really at all. Um, And the Army, to its credit, realized they had a capability gap and that they weren't in a position to repurpose civil affairs quickly enough. So they hired a whole bunch of civilians out of academia, out of different walks of life to be effectively, people called it a cultural advisor job. I I didn't quite see it that way, but to to help be the eyes and ears of the military in that 98% of Baghdad that is not comprised of militias trying to kill you. Um, So I did that in a contracted role initially And for, I don't know, the the next 15 years or so, I've worked as as an advisor, effectively, uh, to all different folks, the US, UK, um, but directly with the Iraqis, directly with the Ukrainians, Nigerians, others. Um, And this also speaks to the the basic premise of our conversations, that I tend to have a lot more fun working with people who can't even begin to afford the fancy tech. and people who are fighting wars in their own countries because they instinctively understand this stuff really matters. You know, you you can't silo off the way you look at violence from the way you look at the communities where violence happens. If you're, you know, a cop working Northeastern Nigeria because you see it, you're from there. You understand broad aspects of it instinctively. Um, You see it as one big tangled mess not as something you can neatly chop up into silos. Um, in the same way, like the Iraqis fighting the Islamic State, they knew that the Islamic State, it was an outgrowth of certain constituencies in their country. And you had to take it all on together.
0: I, I guess part of um, where, where I'm sort of thinking right now is where you're talking about, like maybe part of the reason this like civil affairs force is, is uh, less well-funded, um, is because maybe there's a sense that it would give answers that would be undesirable. In other words, like you talk about the invasion of uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, um, leading to negative consequences, like the rise of ISIS. And there's a feeling that perhaps some of these things, sectarian conflict could be predictable in advance. And yeah. it's Decision makers are just like, listen, I don't want to hear that. We have this objective. We're going in. Please don't give me any more information that I have to now address.
1: Yeah. And this gets into kind of rot in the system, right? Um, I mean, you can go back and and look at the political debate in 2002 when we're talking about going into Iraq and a lot of the senior, more experienced diplomats, foreign area officers, and people who knew the Middle East were saying, this is insane, no way. And they were politely told to shut up and get out of the way, and this is what we're doing. So there is that. Um, And, you know, I I do some commercial work as well, and I had a conversation with a, a fairly senior security official, this is probably going back 10 years or so, in a large West African country that has a lot of oil and a lot of war. Um, I was talking about what I do for a living and these concepts and how to get into this ground truth of what's happening. And he said, look, you know, we don't want to know what's happening in terms of reality in and around our facilities and our pipelines. Because if we know we're liable for it, if not legally, then in the court of public opinion in that country, yep. and we can't win. And sure enough, you know, eight, nine years later, that company left for that country because they just couldn't do business there. Uh, so there is some of that, right? The inconvenient truth aspect. Um, but I, I'm not so cynical as to think that like there's a structural disinterest in knowing what the hell is going on, just so we can manipulate our way into a conflict or toward a particular geopolitical end. But there is an honest effort to get it right, I think. I think just, for me, structurally, the the think like an architectural problem where the the, the intelligence apparatus of the military is very well organized and very efficient and generally very good at looking at enemy forces and finding targets in the core kind of kinetic lethal business of the military. And you get a lot of training, a lot of resource, a lot of technology, very standardized and consistent outputs in terms of what the products look like and what the outcomes look like. and then off somewhere else you have people like civil affairs. and there are other capabilities like that in that sort of universe, but they're one of the, the easiest examples to use here. And they're totally siloed off and they're they're told, hey, you know, look at the civilian stuff and tell us what matters. Where do you start? You know, what questions do you ask? How do you come at this? And then what do your your outputs look like? And there aren't consistent answers to that. And so the outputs are a little different every time and they're frankly as good as the individuals who are out there being asked to do it um, or as good as the, the patience of a particular commander allows in terms of giving them the leeway to do good work. So it's, it's I, I kind, of, kind of want to call it, it's a bit kind of amateurish in a way. I don't mean it to sound insulting, but it's like they're not trained or equipped or positioned to be successful. So you kind of go out and give it your best shot. And that's the reality of it. And so you get this cycle where underperformance feeds marginalization.
0: Right. Yeah, of course. Because it's like, oh, well, these civil affairs people, what are they even doing? You know. Um yeah, and
1: you get some commanders who love it and others who don't have any time for it. Um, but underneath all of it, um, is a lack of consistency that isn't established in in training and doctrine, in in the foundation of how they do what they do. Um, you know if you put a hundred civil affairs professionals you interview them one after the next they give slightly to substantially different explanations of, of what they do for them um, and that wouldn't happen if you lined up human intelligence officers or targeting officers or artillerymen, right there's this fuzzy kind of subjectivity that allows some people to shine and do great stuff but it's not scalable it's not replicable um and so the broader Enterprise really struggles
0: um so the um, and I'm bear in mind obviously I'm asking this as a, a total outside of this world um is this not stuff that like the in terms of intelligence Gathering you know on the ground it, does the CIA not do anything like this or is this not covered by any other branch of government or organization
1: I don't know the answer to that um, what I can say, whatever the agency is doing doesn't feed into, you know, day-to-day tactical decision-making by the military fighting a war. Gotcha. So there may be a room somewhere with no windows where they know what's going on. I- I'm skeptical of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, if it does exist, it'd be nice if they, they, they let people in every now and then, um. But again, I I don't I don't know to what extent, honestly, that's a priority there. Um, hmm. that organization definitely became a manhunting organization over the last 20 years, sort of post-9-11.
0: You you mean manhunting as in for whatever. as in we're finding
1: Al Qaeda, we're finding targets, we're hunting okay. people. Um, and there's been introspection and debate over how to, to refocus the whole intelligence community. Away from a targeting mentality of finding people in caves or people in cities or whatever it might be, to the current reality of well, how do we look at Russia? How do we look at China? What is the the venue for for espionage? Um, and the army has a version of that same conversation. Like, what is the like what is the value proposition of special operations forces in Georgia right now, or in you know? Uh, Morocco, right now, in Jordan, like, what are they doing? They're not kicking indoors anymore. Um, what are they doing? How do you position yourself? A- and for a, an entity like civil affairs, there's an opportunity to be an information gatherer, an insight provider. Um, but again, you have to be able to do it at scale and you have to be able to do it with focus.
0: And who who's the one that uh, allocates the civil affairs budget?
1: This is Pentagon bureaucracy.
0: You know? oh, okay, but in other words, this yeah. is not Congress saying that you get this amount of money. Um, It, it could be the military getting a certain...
1: I, I can't speak to that definitively. I, I think that the Pentagon itself allocates what it wants and the directions it wants to. Um, if people on the Hill made a fuss, they could certainly affect that, shape that right um, um, there there it, isn't a, a civil affairs lobby in the way that like the north, <laughs> north of the world can can right. make phone calls and make sure that airplanes get bought are, are
0: there are there any other countries you mentioned china and russia did, did yeah. they um it seems like china with the the belt and road initiative is doing really well getting like on the ground influence um do they have like their own version of a civil affairs force uh
1: there's been a bit written about what the Russians have tried to do in Syria, um, developing local relationships. Um, when you talk about influence and you talk about what the Russians can do in certain areas, what the Chinese can do in Africa, You know, uh, on a short-term horizon, you can buy a lot of influence if you don't have legal constraints against corruption and paying bribes, right? So the the Chinese business model, broadly speaking, in Africa has been to do large-scale transactions, investments in industry, investments in infrastructure, et cetera, investments in natural resources. They take their cut. People in charge on the local side take their cut. And maybe something's left over for the ordinary man on the street. Um, You know, all of that is extraordinarily against the law. for us right not that laws don't get broken uh, but you know civil affairs the military when they do projects and they do medical assistance in a community like there's nothing remotely on the scale of hey we're going to build six bridges and a highway to nowhere and nine industrial parks and it's going to be a, a 40 billion dollar proposition and the president keeps two or three and his nephew gets one and yeah yeah uh, yeah it's a whole different thing and where it gets interesting from a u.s standpoint is how long that can last and at what point there's sufficient visibility on all this and sufficient pressure or outcry frustration um i think there's a case to be made that you know the chinese strategy in africa is is starting to backfire because of the relationships they've made at a high level and you know because there's a lack of bottom-up Engagement, relationship building, um, delivery of effects, right? They're not reaching that. They haven't tried to, in fairness. So, why would they? Um, but it's a different business model. Um, not that we're more effective necessarily. Um, you know, there's not a ton of evidence of all the foreign aid money that's poured into Africa in the years. Um, in terms of positive outcomes and all the rest of it. So there's definitely problems in that business model too. Um, but, you know, I, I again, I, I talk to people who are, are content is too strong a word, but curious to see what will happen with Russian influence, for example, massively on the upswing in areas of the Sahel, series of military coups, good ties with Russia. You know, you can go up all the way into parts of Libya and, and see, what kind of partner are they? Um, how happy are different constituencies that have relied upon Russia, and Wagner, and these organizations to help them into power? What is the the, the return on that relationship? Maybe just let it play out for a while. You know, in um, and, and, you know, in eighteen months, how happy are people really with uh, the partners they have?
0: Yeah, it, it's an interesting point because that's something that. Uh, I I think a lot of the times the casual person in the States looks at the influence of someone like, uh, or a country like China and sees like, Oh, this belt, Oh, they're, they're eating our lunch and, you know, we're screwed and all, but yeah, it could totally backfire in the same way that, you know, sometimes American attempts at influence have backfired that, um, and we're, we're also speaking at a very interesting time where I've seen a lot of articles and podcasts about, uh, you know where this is the end of pax americana uh the decline of rules based order uh do do you do you have any strong feelings about that either way
1: i think it's accurate um i, I think you're going to see or you are seeing you know a, a measured withdrawal i don't know how planned it is or how deliberate it is right but you know us influence and the broader institutions of the post cold war era are not doing very well at the moment right uh and you have people taking risks all around the world provoking conflict pursuing advantage Um, and that's one of the key arguments in the book uh, is that you know the u.s you know in the pentagon at least we talk about strategic competition right and there's this view of the world where it's the u.s defending its sort of post-cold war legacy um, against the Russians and the Chinese and the rest of the world is the, the sort of backdrop for high-level competition. Um, and the argument we make in the book is that we're we're, we're massively neglecting the, the playing field itself for this contest. And if we just focus on the Russians, just focus on the Chinese, the Iranians, you can add others to that list. You're missing local fundamentals that are going to shape this whole dynamic from the bottom up. And you really have to have a detailed understanding of the context in which this competition happens. Um, that's where it goes back to that pitch for civil affairs as at least part of the solution. Where people, you know, as this sort of idea of this sort of global scout looking at these issues, you know, looking at what's happening in uh you know, Chad, in Georgia, in Vietnam, socially, culturally, politically, economically that's creating challenges, opportunities, risks um, for the Chinese, for the Russians, for us, et cetera. Um, How do we look at that? And again, a lot of this drifts into the State Department's world. A lot of it drifts into academia, NGOs, think tanks. And I think there's an enormous opportunity for civil affairs to be a, a consumer of all that expertise and to feed it into the military's view of the world. Cause I, I don't see that happening at, at the scale that it really needs to. Um, and, and so yeah, I mean I, I, my, my personal views you know skews toward the the non-polar world, right? where the U.S is pulling back, the Chinese have, depending on what you believe, some pretty significant economic and demographic problems. you know, how long can the Russians sustain what they're doing? You know, I, I think it's plausible to see a world where a lot of larger powers pull back. You know, our, our fiscal position isn't particularly robust. Yeah. Our public health position isn't particularly good. Um, there's going to be, I think, I, I see no reason why, you know, securing the U.S. border won't be a growing focus. And everywhere, where the military gets used for better or for worse, where law enforcement gets used, becomes a... A dominant national security priority you know what does that say for u.s power projection in central africa in eastern europe um you know in areas of southeast asia where again that are just totally outside the day-to-day purview worldview of most americans and i don't say that condescendingly at all it's just no, not no, no. part of their life why would it be you know, what happens in Wyoming isn't really big in the day-to-day of a Ghanaian uh, or an Azerbaijani, right? So, yeah.
0: Okay. yeah. Well, but that, okay, on, on that point, there are people now, like taking the war in Ukraine, for example, where we've been funding them for, uh, you know, basically since it began. Um, yeah. And there are people who feel like this is just going to, this is never-ending, Uh, and there are like, you know, quote unquote, average Americans who are saying, well, why are we giving these people billions of dollars? You know, I, I could use some of that money, uh, things like that. Um, what, what's sort of your thought on that? I mean, how, how is this ultimately benefiting, let's say Americans?
1: Well, I mean, you can make an argument that, you know, the, the U S support to the Ukrainians has tied up and, or destroyed sizable percentages of russian combat power for a very small fraction of our defense department budget without any forces on the ground um with again the Americans killed in a volunteer standpoint but we're not deploying soldiers there you can make an argument that this is a pretty good investment from a national security standpoint yeah um and you can speak to the consequences geopolitically of allowing the russians to march through ukraine and what happens next what happens elsewhere in Europe and in the Middle East and in Africa, but the big but here is that if you're an ordinary person and all all this is just kind of outside your day-to-day as fair enough, it certainly ought to be for most people, and you see eight, nine figure checks getting written and you see massive problems in your own community um, in the schools, in the health system, on the border I, I think more and more of that is gonna be a, a, a mainstay of domestic politics. You know, We'll watch the next presidential election. People are gonna have to really make a case in both parties if they wanna sustain support to Ukraine. Um, they have to really make a powerful case that that money has to go there. You're, why aren't we spending it on the border? Why aren't we spending it on whatever domestic challenge you might wanna raise? And it's a bit of a weird kind of fantasy land where it's not as though the u.s government starts from a number and then divides up the pie right they right and yeah. just keep your money so it, it, it's it's that's also very difficult for people to get their heads around um yeah or in a well, way it's actually really simple and people can realize it's it's no but it's the analogy. The the yeah,
0: yeah. But- Politicians would be like, "Oh, well, you wouldn't balance your checkbook." It's like, "Okay, well, you know, the average person can't collect taxes, can't print money." Like this is a terrible yeah. analogy. Um, right. But yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's outside. A there, right?
1: You know, elect me, and the, the hundred billion that was going to go to to Kiev is going to go to Novalis or Tucson or whatever. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it'll be really interesting to watch. And again, that's part of the, these pressures that I think are going to pull America's focus away from a lot of the world to sort out its own house. Uh, And I think that's probably a good thing, Uh, but I I see, Oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry. No, no, no. I was saying, you said it's, it's probably a good thing. And I was saying, you think so it pulling the focus away from.
1: Problems have to get solved. Certainly. Um, And this, again, this, this gets back to something that would be, talked about kind of indirectly is like, what is the real value to the military of having a capability that can investigate and deliver some understanding on the complexities around conflicts that are happening around the world that are are poised to have, understanding the real fundamentals of intercommunal violence here or rivalry there, you know, there could be scenarios in which that feeds into like the perfect campaign plan we can go in and achieve our objectives but more often than not it's a sober view of like wow this is a mess and we're not going to untangle this and we need to be very conservative and very careful about how we engage with it and how we use the military assets that we have uh and i think that sort of the, the hangover of iraq and afghanistan um and a lot of the, the bitterness in sort of the, the veteran community of people who, who fought in those wars about what was actually achieved and why and and the stories that were were the messages that were, were put out at a high level to justify it all you know a lot of that rings pretty hollow now it's been very hard i think to justify that sort of effort in the future um so i i i do see a bit of a shift Homeward, um, which again I, I you can take a different view. Like if if you're a Ukrainian fighting to sustain your position against the Russians, you need American support and you need to be able to be able to make your case for that. I'm sympathetic to that, right? Like that that's the place where, where I'm I'm actively involved. And I've tried to make my own case in a small way, saying, Look, like Ukraine has developed in large part, out of necessity, uh, a resistance strategy that is fundamentally contingent on a perpetual flow of vast amounts of military and financial aid, and you can't count on that. And what happens when that that spigot gets turned off? I frankly thought it might get turned off a lot sooner. Um, you know, last winter wasn't the horror show in Europe people thought it might be. Um, you know energy prices went up but it wasn't a catastrophe and the lights stayed on and all the rest but increasingly you know people are questioning these investments and sometimes from pretty dishonest arguments we talked about that kind of fuzzy math of well it's the money is being spent here it ought to be spent there and it's not quite that simple
0: um, right. but
1: we'll see you know
0: it's an interesting discussion you i and and Something on this topic on the topic of Ukraine. There was an article that you had written. Uh it was called a like, Gorillas on the Bench. Uh yeah. there's a particular part of it that I thought was interesting. Um, we said uh, PSYOP is increasingly an e-capability and is presently yeah. at an embarrassing timeout. Um, the the PsyOps are just fascinating to everybody. Um, so yeah. I, I wanted to one, when you say e-capability, do you mean just like social sure. media manipulation or, yeah. Yeah. or oh,
1: yeah, how much of, and again, the, the, the British have a version of the same conversation the Americans do, where there's a lot of risk and a lot of messiness to groundwork. And, okay, hey, if you're a SIOP professional and we're occupying Baghdad, you can move around that city and, and do different things. Um, but if you're a SIOP and you're trying to work Southeast Asia and you have no legal permissions to to move around that country and do that kind of thing? Well, social media, Twitter, Facebook, you know? Yeah. You can be a scalable, quantifiable, measurable thing, right? Uh, and there's been a pretty strong push to leverage that kind of technology to reach different constituencies without the risk. Um, and with, much, in, in theory, much greater reach. Um, so that that's a big debate and that's a big issue across the military um if we want to understand a country a conflict how much of that can be done by you know scraping and harvesting and, and all these analytics off of social media yeah i don't know uh, you know you, you want to you know I, the, the best parallel i can think of is the the polling industry and all the money and all the expertise and all the tech that goes into influencing and predicting and understanding elections in America. And we don't get that particularly right very often. Yeah. Um, why do we think we're going to go to Somalia or Libya or eastern Ukraine and use social media as a stand-in for reality? You, no, know, you can certainly use it as a vector of information. You can use it in certain ways, but to understand what's really happening and why, how reliable is any of that? you know, what percentage of Twitter accounts in Libya are, you know, bot armies, you know, it's, it's definitely in double digits, Yeah, Uh, it could be a plurality, uh, depending on how you slice it up. So yeah. Uh, and again, there've been some scandals and the rest, um, in really the whole special operations community has had some, some interesting ups and downs. It's probably an aside for this conversation.
0: Um, yeah. What 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 do psyopers do? It's like when you say like just go through the streets of Baghdad or Vietnam or whatever. What what do these people do?
1: Again, I, I'm out of my my lane a bit.
0: I mean,
1: anything from broadcast messages and leaflets, um, saying hey, you know, here's how to turn yourself in, or kind of playing some mind games, uh, to more subtle influence and. and you know the, the the darker end of it, um, and this was in the in the papers. You know the, the British capability uh, seventy seven brigade um, was used domestically in the UK during COVID um, on the British population. The mandate ostensibly was to to look for misinformation and disinformation about COVID and vaccines and all the rest, with the view that the Chinese and the Russians were trying to do certain things. Uh, but they ended up running, you know, influence activities on British people because um, they don't have the legal structure that the U.S. does. Where that's, you know, their ethical problems there. Uh, but again, it, it's it's an interesting world. Um, put it that way. That,
0: that there was, I, I I wanted I don't want to take up too much of your time here. Um, but there on the the. Like the, the topic of Pax Americana, uh, you know, dissolving on the topic of uh, particularly people I, I think are fearful of China and invading Taiwan. And one of the arguments of um, g- like giving Ukraine funds is saying that hey, if we back down here, China will be emboldened, uh, and feel more at ease, uh, going ahead with an invasion. Do you feel like that's one, a reasonable argument, and two, whether or not it is, is China going to invade Taiwan?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll caveat all this saying I've never worked, you know, east of Oman, right? Yeah. So China is way out of my my zone. Um, I, I am very sympathetic to the argument that if, if the West throws in the towel on Ukraine, that can only whet the appetite in Beijing. Right, very much so. So I, I definitely think that you know you back to the domino effect theories of the Cold War, right? Um, where yeah, if the U.S. once again lets down a key ally for the the umpteenth time, right? Um, yeah, I would think that raises the stakes in, in Southeast Asia. Um, what the Chinese have planned, I, I have no idea um genuinely and, and you know the, the serious people i know who work taiwan south china sea china are significantly concerned about um and you know people i talk to in, in dc in senior you know rungs of the military are talking more about china than russia um mm-hmm. in terms of their concerns and in terms of national security priorities and, and i've heard the argument that the U.S. really ought to taper off support for Ukraine in a non-embarrassing, catastrophic way to, to marshal strength for China. Um, we only have so many of these munitions. We only have so many resources. How much more can it should be actually sent to Ukraine if there is a real threat of war in, in Southeast Asia? So, again, all, all that chat comes from people more knowledgeable than I am uh, on that one. But they, it's definitely serious. Uh, and there definitely is a real prospect of something.
0: Fair enough. Um, a, a, and when we talk about, you you said you're sort of, you know, east of Oman. Um, you don't have the kind of on the ground experience there. Um, yeah. But you mentioned the domino theory in there. And that is, it, it's really interesting because th- this domino theory has not proven to be correct in the case of like communism where like now Vietnam is like a a, I believe a friend of ours because of the conflict with China and under the domino theory of the time that shouldn't have happened they should have been really close to communist China um so I I don't know I mean
1: yeah this again this comes back to to the tension between high level oversimplification and political theory that sounds catchy and a brief versus the messiness of ground truth and they were you know, I you think know, to include Ho Chi Minh, there are people in Vietnam back then saying look, you know we're not going to fall under China's sway, we fought wars against the Chinese you know, with this, this is an independent, this is our national thing and it's local and it's specific and it has all these different contextual factors for it if you show up, we'll fight you. But we're not going to become part of some Chinese empire. And that that local complexity was discounted in the name of, of one of these big conceptual frameworks. And you could put the global war on terror in that category, right? We're going right. to go out. And we're going to hunt for these things, and we're going to kill these networks. And yeah, we did. And it didn't necessarily get us anywhere. Um, you look at what happened in iraq what happened in afghanistan al-qaeda is still out there the islamic state is still out there is pakistan you know more or less alarming today than it was in you know the 10th of september 2001 for all that we've done there i don't know um it's not a resounding success story right where do you find those successes
0: that's just a crazy st- I, like I, I agree with you but it's so crazy considering the trillions of dollars literally that have been spent thousands of lives not to mention you know the millions of uh people living there who've been yeah. killed or affected in some way it's so wild like is this it, it, and it seems um what you know something i wanted to ask you before we go here is it seems like this sort of branch of this niche that you've carved out for yourself, you've mentioned how the civil affairs force is underfunded um, and sort of either dismissed, derided, or misunderstood. And it must be kind of, uh, it must be hugely frustrating to be in this sort of position. And I'm curious, why not just go for the bag and, you know, get get in, become an arms dealer? I don't know what people do. Um, yeah it's
1: either principles or, or lack of imagination uh, i don't know <laughs> some combination of the two right Uh, yeah because in all of it is it, a measure of, of empathy right and if you work in conflict right you, you go to war uh, and you spend significant time there like you, you do see humanity in its purest form um and you can't i right? see so you can't i i can't forget that right you come back to them uh and you see it on your side you see it on their side wherever they are wherever they live uh, these are people and all the good and all the evil it, it's all there um and yeah i, I guess you could try to to, to close off that view and forget about it uh and, and sell rockets or something like that um, but it's compelling i guess um and i haven't been able to, to walk away from it um despite the fact that you know it's not like there are 65 versions of me competing for every contract you know it's it's a lonely room uh of people who Give a crap, uh, you know. At least in the outside, trying to work with these capabilities that are are hugely important and full of a lot of really good people, uh, but they're kind of shouting into a hurricane, um, or maybe better said, they're they're shouting into an empty room. And you know, it's it's me and a couple other people in there saying, "Yeah, we agree, but what are we going to do?" You know. Mm. So yeah, I mean. There is frustration in it, um, but what else are you gonna do? You know, uh, I, it's worth doing. Uh, you do get your wins here and there. Um, that's why I find it particularly rewarding, you know, going to Ukraine, going to Iraq, going to places like that, where you can detach yourself entirely from U.S. politics, U.S. strategy, all the rest of it, and just work directly with people who can't pack up and go home if the whole thing goes to shit because they are home Uh, and whatever their level of, of, you know, budget and tech and all the rest, it doesn't matter because fundamentally we're going to go out and we're going to figure out how to look at this problem that's in their sort of proverbial backyard, um, give them a structured view of it and and start to work on it. Um, And, you know, U.S defense security kind of support doesn't really do that which is a shame um because that's where you get into you know arm sales and all that rest there's no money in there's so, no money in arm sales yeah. no 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 in, in what i'm doing collectively oh, okay. right? <laughs> the, the money is in arms that's why the, the embassy right. is focused on that yeah we'll, we'll facilitate deals um you know so he, you know you the right way to say it. like, it's hard to, to quit a connection to that kind of humanity right sure, uh, yeah. you see these people and you hear their stories uh, you work with them um, and they appreciate it that's alright um, and again a few steps in the right direction here and there in the west US, UK, NATO uh, there are good things happening uh, this has been kind of a pessimistic conversation about things that aren't great no
0: no I mean and there's a lot of reason for that right
1: uh, yeah. I mean I, that, that that's my narrative not one that you forced on me um, but yeah you no, know, that there, there are things to be to be positive about and to to get you up and going I,
0: I think I think that's a beautiful note to end it on although there is one other question I want to ask that is that is less probably uh, spiritually uh you know pro, you know positive um on the question of you mentioned arm sales uh, my friends and I, uh, my my engineering friends, uh, we 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 would love to be arms dealers. We want to be Nicolas Cage. We, we want, how, how do you do that? Is that is that a real thing? They're
1: out there. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I don't know where the uh, the internship is for you, but uh, yeah. I mean, what I see a lot of it is moving stuff from a cold war zone to a hot war zone in getting the, the crates of stuff from point A to point B. Um unless you want to get into the manufacturing business, which is a whole other thing. There's nah, plenty I don't money in that too. But yeah, I uh I don't think I can help you on that one.
0: That's uh, okay.
1: They're out there. And you go, you know, you go to Kiev and hang out in the hotels for a while but you'll you'll find them. They're there.
0: <laughs> is that is that a good strategy? Good. <laughs>
1: I wouldn't advise it, but if if your heart's set, go for
0: it. Certainly, that's not, not not set on that. That's um, <laughs> a, a fun pie in the sky dream. But um, Nick, pleasure talking to you. Um, you. Really learned a lot, and uh, I really I really appreciate your um, your mindset and uh, the way you think about these issues. A lot of the times, people look at the military as this kind of like scary, you know, whatever thing. Um, but I think that. Uh, clearly that's not the case and the way you address these issues uh, speaks to that so thank you very much for your time yeah thanks for having me i appreciate it all take care thank you to nicholas crowley and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan Gami. see you next time